Hello, and welcome to Uplift, a podcast about the transformative power of design from architecture and design firm NBBJ. I'm your host, Andy Snyder. Each episode, we chat with people from all over the healthcare continuum who have been deeply affected by the built environment. On today's episode, hospitals and healthcare buildings are some of the most resource intensive on the planet. On average, they use twice the energy of most other building types. In the US alone, the healthcare system accounts for 10% of the nation's carbon dioxide emissions, while in the UK, the NHS is responsible for 20 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions annually. Luckily, energy efficient design strategies, paired with legislation regulating carbon emissions, are helping hospitals lower their energy use without compromising patient care or experience. To discuss in detail, I'm joined by Jonathan Slutzman, Director of the Center for Environment and Health and Medical Director for Environmental Sustainability at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and my colleague Tom Sinevich. Jonathan and Tom are working together on the Philip and Susan Reagan Building, a radically sustainable addition to MGH's Boston campus, powered almost entirely by renewable energy. We'll discuss net zero and electric hospitals, advancements in sustainability for large medical centers, and strategies for hospitals to lower their energy use and achieve groundbreaking performance. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for being here. Jonathan, I'll start with you. From what I've heard, it sounds like you're a little bit of a real life superhero, saving the environment by day and people by night. Tell us a little more about what you do at Mass General and how you found your way to such an interesting career. Thanks, Andy. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for, for having us. I don't know that I would go so far as to say that I'm a real life superhero, but I, I think what I do is important and I really enjoy doing it. My primary responsibility and the reason that I get to join you today is that at Mass General, I lead our Center for the Environment and Health, and I'm the medical director for environmental sustainability at the hospital. I started out as an environmental engineer and worked for a consulting company on technical projects in a variety of fields. And then I went on to medical school and practiced as an emergency physician. The great part is that today I get to do both. I get to be an environmental engineer in healthcare and lead a team tackling environmental challenges that impact human health and healthcare delivery. Tom, you've been with NBBJ for more than 35 years in our Boston office, and you're also heavily involved with community affairs in the Boston area. Tell us a little bit about what you do at the firm and how that kind of bleeds into your community activities and vice versa. Well, thank you, Andy. As you said, I'm I'm an architect. I'm also a city planner and a licensed builder. Very, very interested in the implementation of the projects that we design here at NBBJ, but especially interested in the politics of getting stuff done. And so while Jonathan is up late saving lives in the middle of the night, I'm sitting on boards and commissions where I have participated through public appointments for now 21 years. And through that experience of sitting on boards and commissions, I've had the great privilege to participate in the writing of some of the first net zero zoning regulations in the country, some of the first zoning regulations that relate to hardening and and building resiliency into the building stock in our communities. I've been able to bring that perspective and very deep knowledge on, on these subjects to bear on the projects I do for my clients. And that's primarily these days MGH. Thanks so much, Tom. And thanks again, Tom and Jonathan, for being with us. Jonathan, I mentioned in the introduction to this episode that hospitals 
are some of the most energy-intensive buildings on the planet. And that's despite being environments dedicated to health and healing. Tell us about some of the reasons that hospitals are responsible for so much of our nation's carbon emissions. Hospitals are the second most energy-intensive commercial buildings in our country, and there are a number of important reasons for that. First, we operate all the time, 24-7, every day of the year. You've mentioned that, that I work at night. We're there all the time taking care of our patients. We perform procedures that need particular internal, inside climate control settings, and that requires a lot of energy to maintain. We have to follow, as Tom knows very well, pretty strict rules and regulations around those climate controls that, that we think keep people safer. And all of that leads to greater energy demands than you would find in a typical commercial building or almost any building that we see in our communities. And that greater energy demand translates into increased greenhouse gas emissions for almost every place. Secondly, we use a lot of stuff, much of which needs to be sterile for patient safety, but even if not, it's that supply chain, it's all of those materials, the manufacture, the distribution, and the disposal of those materials that contribute the most to our greenhouse gas emissions, upwards of about 50% across the healthcare sector. And it just adds up that we do a lot of things with the goal, the admirable goal, I think, of bringing all the resources we can to bear to take the best care of our patients in front of us. But unfortunately, that carries with it some negative externalities, some upstream and downstream effects that can negatively impact human health. So it's not just the bricks and mortar like one would anticipate. It's, it's kind of the operations, the material flows, and, and all of the equipment and, and everything that are so intensive, as you mentioned, in hospital environments that are contributing to it. It's different than other, other building types. Maybe as a follow-up to that question, you specialize in research around climate change and human health. I think most listeners are probably familiar with the baseline impacts of climate change on our environment, but can you delve a little more into the implications that climate change has on population and individual health? I describe, and many others describe, climate change as a threat multiplier. It affects all body systems, all medical specialties, and either makes existing diseases in many cases worse or introduces people to the risk of different kinds of illnesses. We have an increase in interpersonal violence, so we see more traumatic injury. It really affects everything that we see, and all of these are disproportionately impacting the vulnerable. So the people who are least responsible for climate change, the people who have the least resources to adapt to it, are the ones who are suffering the most, whether it's through urban heat island effects or nutrition or violence or other things. Really, the way that I would describe it, and I take this from an emergency medicine colleague of mine, Jay Lemery out in Colorado, is that climate change is a disease of disasters and vulnerability. It's all of these threat multipliers on various health conditions and vulnerable populations. And we have a responsibility in medicine really to mitigate that as best we can. Yeah, interesting. I mean, your point about the multiplying effect is something I don't think, you know, we think about, I think to your earlier point, one could extrapolate that that multiplying effect just increases the demand, so to speak, on the infrastructure. Yeah, Andy, and it, and it also creates, it contributes to what I call an unvirtuous cycle, where people get sick, 
unfortunately, whether it's through bad luck or injury or whatever else, people get sick. That's why we have hospitals and physicians and healthcare providers. They get sick. They seek care, which they should, and we should take care of them and bring them back to the best health we can. Unfortunately, that care contributes to worsening environmental degradation, worsening climate change, which then leads to worsening health. And you can see that spiral going down. We really need to break that spiral. So, Tom, conversations around climate change and energy emissions related to buildings have been happening for a long time, but they seem to have ramped up in recent years due to the growing concern and sense of urgency around the health of the planet. These conversations have also spurred a movement toward legislation at the local level to address emissions. Can you talk about this in general terms and then maybe drill into some of what's taking place in Boston specifically regarding some of the like local legislature, local regulations around carbon reduction? We're fortunate in New England, and there are some other areas of the United States that are generally, government is generally aware and focused on rules and regulations and building codes that need to address climate change and greenhouse gas production as quickly as possible. We're finding that government is actually moving faster, leading the profession, sadly, but taking up the call of professionals who have been ringing this bell of alarm for quite some time. I personally experienced the effect of this locally when there was a clarion call around net zero. And this was, I want to say, seven or eight years ago, but it was a concept that's pretty easy to describe or at least to understand. Let's make buildings that don't have a carbon footprint harder to understand how to actually do that and how to define where the carbon is happening. But fast forward through regulation and then through the revised regulation, a check-in after five years, local governments have now moved pretty quickly in Boston. We have now the Building Emissions Reduction and Disclosure Ordinance, or BIRDO, moving the city to net zero at 2050, probably not fast enough, but it starts with measurement and then that's what's going to be demanded out of these regulations here in Boston. That's been followed actually by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, who has now just as of July 2023, put into place a stretch, an energy code, a revised energy code and a stretch energy code. And so the stretch code has been adopted and professionals are now obliged and owners are obliged to adhere to very high standards relative to greenhouse gas production. We've talked about some of the causes of carbon emissions in hospitals and the fact that administrators and decision makers are being encouraged and sometimes forced to address the issue. From a design standpoint, what are some sustainable design features that hospitals can implement so they are more energy efficient, Tom? What we would tell any other user is look at your program. You know, the fastest way to reduce your carbon footprint is to change your energy needs. Let's turn down the thermostats. Let's turn off the lights at night. That's just not possible. As Jonathan has so beautifully stated, the program of a hospital is driven by its clinical requirements and we can't adjust those very well. So, in terms of design strategies specific to healthcare, if you're looking at the reduction of greenhouse gas, we absolutely recommend that we look at moving as fast as we can to electric platform, all electric platform if it's possible. Also look at the source of where the energy is coming. Is there opportunity to potentially aggregate the energy production either by district or by campus? Obviously, the, the scale of that production and distribution of energy has huge effects on the efficiency of, of systems in a hospital. I would say lastly, hospitals are 
as a building type big. What that means is that, yes, adjustments in the envelope are important, but by comparison to conventional buildings, it makes a huge difference and a huge relative difference in a, in a conventional building, in a residential building, for instance, where the ratio of skin to volume is more dramatic in a hospital. Yes, you can uh, eke out efficiencies, but not quite at the at the rate in which you can in any other building type. Jonathan, you mentioned earlier just some of the, I'll call it non-brick and mortar type of aspects of, of hospitals that contribute to this issue. What about just activities in general inside the hospital? Are there things like equipment or certain procedures or practices like anesthesia, for example, that contribute to a hospital's emissions, maybe more than some more than others? Essentially... What I would say is that all pollutant emissions in healthcare start at the patient's bedside. Some things are just a little bit more obvious than others. Anesthesia, you mentioned, is a great example. Anesthesiologists make really important choices about how to provide anesthesia for operations and other procedures all the time, keeping patients comfortable and safe. Much of the time, they'll use inhalational anesthetics, so anesthetic gases, to provide this service. And primarily there are four anesthetic gases that we use in the United States. Those four are not equivalent from a climate perspective. And I'll, I'll also add that they all ultimately end up in the environment. So anesthesia is one, one way that we really contribute from a programmatic perspective, the way that Tom would put it. Another is I mentioned all that stuff. So the stuff we use, the supply chain, is the biggest contributor to our emissions. And we know from many, many, many studies that reusable equipment has a much lower climate impact than single-use disposable supplies. So shifting more towards reusable from a climate perspective would be much better. Unfortunately, in recent years, I would say over the last five to 10 years, there's been much more of a shift away from reusables to single-use disposables for a number of reasons and lastly, and I don't want to say this is the least at all, is focusing on keeping patients healthy. That we know from many fields within medicine that, that a healthier patient has much lower healthcare costs than a sick patient, because we, we know that the inpatient care is really so much more environmentally challenging and, and honestly harder a bit to mitigate than, than an outpatient care setting. Earlier in the episode, we mentioned Mass General's highly sustainable Reagan building. Tom, can you tell us a little bit more about that project in general and then about some of the sustainability requirements and features it addresses? It's a much-needed facility for Mass General. It provides single patient room beds, huge improvement over the inventory that they have today, about 500 beds, those in two towers, a center of excellence around cardiac care and then also for oncology, for cancer treatments. That sits on a five-story platform or podium, which contains the procedures, the operating rooms, the imaging suites, and other support spaces. And then as it meets the ground, it's got important urban conditions of building of the scale, uh, welcoming the public in an, in an atrium, public street. Uh, there's also a subway stop that's built into the base of the building, and it all sits on top of uh, advanced pharmacy and a garage system below. So some of the features, the building is almost all electric and will be net zero sooner than we in fact planned. Its last bit of carbon-driven or carbon-produced energy is about 15% in the heating 
heating seasons produced by steam. I'll get to that in a minute. But the last bit of methane, the last bit of natural gas that was taken out of the program after a hard conversation with the chefs, the cooks at MGH, which pride themselves on the quality of the food that they provide for their patients, and they agreed to go to induction cooking and eliminate the need for natural gas burners in the kitchens. That was the last program that had a requirement for natural gas that was taken out. So we are plugging this in to the electrical grid in Boston. Now, to the 15% of steam, the community held our feet to the fire on that. And this was interesting to me because I have a longer connection with this steam production. It's coming from a power plant, a power generation plant across the river in Cambridge. And the steam is produced as a byproduct of a natural gas turbine that's generating electricity for Kendall Square and Life Science and MIT over there. Jonathan, you were heavily involved in the design process from the Mass General side. What was the impetus for designing a project that not only meets, but goes above and beyond sustainability goals? And what were some of the challenges you saw during this initial process and these early conversations? From my perspective, the reason to design a better building is simply that it's our responsibility to do that. We, as a healthcare institution, have that moral imperative. So we can't have a state-of-the-art hospital building that causes more harm to people outside of the hospital. Tom mentioned that the community, the public, held our feet to the fire. Our hospital team went to a particular community meeting expecting to hear about concerns regarding traffic and sight lines and shading of the sun and things like that. But instead, what happened was a number of people stood up at a public meeting and started asking questions about net zero and climate change emissions and what was the hospital going to do about it. At the same time, we had and continue to have physicians who are on staff at at the MGH who are clearly passionate about this, and, and I am in that group, who were asking internally, what are we doing here? Why aren't we doing better? Can we do better? So that's that's the answer of why we needed to do this. The challenges really honestly boil down to two things. One is cost. We can't ignore the cost. And Tom knows this better than I, I think, but my understanding is that all of the sustainability efforts that we put into this building to get the energy load down to 15% fossil fuel fired and potentially as low as zero when it opens with with the electrically generated steam from the the Kendall cogeneration plant, all of those changes to the design added a fraction of 1% to the cost. So yeah, it added some cost, but in the long run, it's very likely that with the operational savings that we'll achieve through simpler maintenance perhaps, and certainly by changing our fuel source with, with its attendant costs, I have a feeling that we're going to end up making up that fraction of 1% of the cost of this building. So the other big challenge, and Tom mentioned it, is that is that 15% load. And he said, we have, we have a steam demand 12 months a year. It's not just for our autoclaves for sterilization. It's also that we have very tight humidification requirements for many parts of our buildings, particularly the ORs and other procedural spaces. And that requires a certain level of moisture to be injected into our HVAC, even in the summer. And what we found out was from a technological perspective, it's really, really hard to do that, if not maybe even impossible today 
with the technology available short of using Steam like we do now. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan, another major aspect of this project that has to do with sustainability, although maybe a little bit less directly, is the concept of resilience. First, how is resiliency related to climate change and sustainability? And second, can you tell us about some of the project's resiliency features? Climate change increases the probability of storms and floods and supply chain shocks. We have to be able to operate regardless of these circumstances. The Reagan building is designed with these threats in mind. For example, it's designed to be able to operate for 96 hours as an island without any input or output to be able to continue providing care to our patients. It's designed to withstand greater winds and greater flooding than any other building on the MGH campus. Tom mentioned that the lower floors of the of the building have garage space that will be able to be sealed to mitigate against flooding, I think. Plus, this building will be a lifeboat of sorts for the rest of the campus, able to absorb patients from other buildings if they're not able to operate fully so that we can continue to be that anchor for the community, for the city of Boston, for the region, since we know that, God forbid, some sort of disaster strikes the people around us, the people we care for every day, are only going to need more care. These are the vulnerable people, and we need to be there. So the Reagan building was clearly designed with, with these threats in mind. Thanks, Jonathan. Tom, what's a piece of advice that you would give another healthcare institution looking to significantly reduce carbon in their own building projects? I think this podcast goes to the heart of how I would answer it, which is it's complicated. Ask for help. It's a public health issue. You need to lead. But MGH is an example of many institutions in the United States and in the world. In fact, it's a teaching hospital, right? And not only does that mean that you invent new clinical operations and care that reduce suffering, but it also, and then share those ideas as quickly as you can. It also means within the production of your physical plant, within the design decisions that you were faced with and how you confronted them, an encouragement to share and an encouragement to share the lessons learned coming out of the particular design that you're working on. And Tom, what about organizations that might have limited funding as, as many do right now? What are one or two key things you'd recommend to any institution looking to reduce their carbon footprint? I would recommend to somebody that was constrained or an institution that might be constrained that they would embark on perhaps an energy master plan to try to understand the flows of energy both in and out of their facility. Is it possible to deploy district strategies? Can you share loads in a really good way with direct neighbors in ways that you hadn't imagined before? Can you identify the primary sources of waste? Where do you get the most bang for your dollar in terms of altering a physical plant in reducing your carbon. So I think there's a lot of thinking, which is relatively inexpensive compared to buying and altering buildings that would help you get organized in terms of a master plan and a plan of attack to to reduce your carbon. And Jonathan, kind of as a follow-up to that, I know that strategies are different for organizations building new and those that might be renovating or renewing existing facilities. Can you explain what some of those differentiators might be or, or how we might think of them as kind of a collective community of end users and engineers and architects kind of partnering to design for the future? 
I'll preface that it's Kate Walsh, who used to be the, the CEO at Boston Medical Center here and is now the Secretary for Health and Human Services in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. She had a great line, which is that the, the most efficient hospital building is the one that isn't built. So generally speaking, there are likely going to be more environmental efficiency gains from renovating or retrofitting an existing structure than from building a new one. There's a lot that goes into building a new building that you guys know much better than I. And being able to avoid some of those emissions, the demolition, the the new materials is pretty significant. So retrofits generally are going to be more environmentally efficient. That said, it comes with the challenge of a physical plant. We were actually just talking earlier today at Mass General Brigham about some of the technologies that we're implementing in the Reagan building, could we bring them to some of the other buildings on our campus and kind of make them better? And the biggest challenge is just physical plant, the mechanical rooms, the space. They weren't built, they weren't designed for some of these things, so the space might not necessarily be there for it, which limits some applicability. The new buildings obviously have the benefit that that the Reagan building was designed for a lot of these technologies on purpose. So there's no natural gas line. It wasn't put in. There is space for exhaust heat recovery, heat pumps. There's space for for chillers. There's space for all these things that we could do that we might not otherwise have been able to do. You might remember that last season, we tried to end each interview on an uplifting note asking our guests about what makes them hopeful for the future of whichever topic we happen to discuss. In that spirit, I'd like to ask each of you what makes you excited about the future of sustainable and energy-efficient hospital design. Tom, maybe I'll start with you. What makes you hopeful and excited for the future? First of all, we're bending the curve. I mean, I think as we just said, we've achieved something extraordinary here. We've got a ways to go, not just in hospital environments, but in the built environment as a whole. You know, my advice to people facing this enormous problem is that be careful about the rhetoric because we've got to inspire. We have to do this as a team and you have to inspire others. That's also the story here that we've been talking about. Inspire others to help. And so as an environmentalist, be careful about how you talk about this. You run around and say the sky's falling and we're all doomed. I've found in my experience, it's not particularly motivating. But conversely, if you say, okay, we've got this enormous problem, let's break it down. Let's apply some of the good solutions that Jonathan has described here in great, great detail, it is possible to bend the curve and it is possible. Just get on it. Let's move. We can get this done. We can solve this. And the curve is bending. Jonathan, how about you? What excites you the most about the future of net zero hospital design and some of the things we've talked about today? Yeah. In a word, I'm going to say clinicians. And you know, maybe this is a little bit uh, self-serving or biased in that I am a clinician, but hopefully I still get a little bit of street cred by being an environmental engineer. I think that what we've seen certainly at Mass General Brigham is that over the last five years, our activity in sustainability has grown maybe exponentially, and it correlates with a period when clinicians have gotten more and more directly involved. And I think we're seeing it across the country. There are more and more medical directors of sustainability at medical institutions around North America. Every few weeks, I hear about another one being appointed. And I think that it's really changing the conversation within healthcare. It's going, it's certainly 
affecting the programmatic, the clinical care bedside discussion, but also the the built environment parts that that I think these discussions are really driving us as an industry forward. So uh, so really, it's it's the clinicians that give me hope. Thanks so much for joining us today. Special thanks to our guests, Jonathan Slutsman and Tom Sinevich. To see photos of the Reagan Building and read more about energy reduction in healthcare and beyond, visit our website at nbbj.com. If you liked what you heard, please share, like, or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.